This is the Rad Mars Podcast, Episode 2. I'm Andy Mindler. I'm Brendan Trombley. I'm Trevor Williams. And I'm Andrew Ford. I, I've been playing... Um, I've been playing a lot of remakes lately. Well, not a lot. Well, it seems like there's a lot in the marketplace in general. There's like, uh, you know, Resi- the two Resident Evils, Resident Evil 2 and 3, Final Fantasy 7, and I've been playing uh, Trials of Mana, which is just Seiken Densetsu 3. Densetsu? Den- yeah. I've been playing Trials of Mana. I don't know. Did any have any of you played Seiken Densetsu three? It didn't come out in America like in a proper release until I think like a year ago when it was released as a like Legend of Mana package thing. Yeah, I pl- um, I, I played it um, on an SNES emulator uh, back in like two thousand and four. I didn't even play the whole game, although it seemed amazing. Secret of Mana, you know, uh, Seiken Densetsu two is one of my favorite, you know, all time retro games i loved that game as a kid and just have you know amazing memories of it and second decessor 3 seemed like a continuation of that um definitely want to give it a shot weirdly though i haven't been a fan of any of the other mana games they just didn't capture the same feeling that secret of mana did yeah my experience is almost the same actually like i also played secret of mana and loved it as a kid I also played uh second Setsu 3 like on an emulator probably a decade after it came out but I got maybe halfway through it, I got bored and I stopped playing. Yeah, I played uh, Second Densetsu 3 uh, as a ROM, uh, probably around the same time that Brandon did. Um, it's the the original is extremely pretty. The art is so great, and yeah, I love the original Secret of Mana. Uh, had a great time with it. I thought Second Densetsu 3. I played I played maybe like eight hours of it or something like that, and it was really cool. And then I also played, I think, Legend of Mana, which was on PS1. the PlayStation two. 1, 2? Was it 2? Yeah, that was the one where you could, like, you, like, crafted the map yourself, right, by plonking down, like, yes. chunks. Yeah. Yeah. I played a shitload of that game. It was awesome, but also kind of crappy, because the map-making thing wasn't super great. But, I don't know, I loved every part of that game pretty much, other than that. Um, yeah. So I don't yeah, know, like like that, those sort those sorts of like the later legend or the, the later mana games got a little too like gamey, like they got a little too like meta gamey, you know, where you were like it was like a game mechanic to build the world, but like the cool thing about Secret of Mana was that the world itself was this crazy like fleshed out place, and the story was fleshed out, and like everything was was there and 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 ready for you to like conquer and explore. Um, it wasn't like the best story ever, you know, but it was pretty awesome for. Kid me playing the SNES at least. Yeah. The one weird thing that stands out in my memory about Legend of Ma- or Secret Mana rather is that if I recall correctly, there were no default names for any of the three main characters. You had to come up with them yourself, and I hated doing that as a kid. Yeah, I think it was like just girl and boy, and then Sprite. Second Tetsu Three definitely has names. Legend of Mana didn't because, uh, or I don't know. I think you just chose between like a boy and a girl i really liked legend of mana i this wasn't really where i was gonna go with this thought train but i really liked that game um the world like although the map making was weird the actual world and like individual like spaces were really fleshed out and really cool and there was a lot of character to it i think there was actually a lot more character to it than Secret of Mana, like looking back on it, like and playing Secret of Mana again, like yeah, even playing Trials of Mana, I almost feel like maybe maybe though it's one of those things where Legend of Mana, uh, I played so much of it as a kid that it was like such a foundational element in my mind that it has more character than it actually has. It's I don't know, I'd have to go back and play, but I'll never do that. Could be uh, rose-colored glasses. I mean, I probably have a lot of rose-colored glasses for Secret of Mana as well. Yeah. We all do for the games we grew up with. Totally. Like, I'm thinking of Secret of Mana and some of, like, the major problems it had, and I'm remembering, like, the sort of, like, combat system in terms of how you would charge up attacks. You basically just sat there with a button mashed, you know, sort of moving slowly for, like, a minute, and then you unleashed an attack. Yeah, it was not It was not good. Oh, actually, I thought it was, so that, that plays really well with the fact that you could do, like, couch co-op. 
in the age of SNES, which is insane, right? Like, um, <laughs> so I, I mean, I remember being like a seven year old kid and like freaking out, being like, I'm charging my full attack, keep me safe. And I'm like in the background, like, and you know, the rest of them are like fighting all the dudes away. And then I go, back off, back off, I've got it. And then I like jump in and my character flips out and destroys everything. That's true. It it was very satisfying. Like, even though it wasn't a very good, like, game mechanic, like, as a kid, it was really satisfying to unleash those attacks. And also, I was really bad at the game. And, like, for the final boss, like, you need to basically cast a spell from two different spellcasters on the, whoever has the sword in order to do damage to the final boss. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. I couldn't figure that out. Instead, I just charged the attacks up to, like, level 8, which did damage as well, and very slowly killed the boss that way. <laughs> Hey, different strokes, I guess. <laughs> well, with the the new like Trials of Mana, it's like it's a it's a super weird remake. So they revamped the combat. It's now also a like third person action game where like the camera's like behind the character, so it's like a fully three D world. And the combat is like X button is just like a low like your regular attack, and then like B or I don't know whatever is like your heavy attack, and then you have a jump button, and then there's like a powerful attack that like works kind of like how the old game did where you have, you have like a 100% gauge that like goes up but it's it's very strange because they've like added voiceovers and like full cutscenes and stuff like that and everything's now like fully 3D and stuff and the 3D is pretty high quality but they do some like the way the way that they've gone about making stuff feels kind of like ps2 era thinking where they have like a base mesh and then they like tile textures everywhere and they kind of reuse a lot of tire tiles so like i was in a castle and all the castle walls and the floor and stuff all use the same like repeating brick texture and so the actual texture was high resolution but it's repeated everywhere so it all looks really kind of bad the characters look good for the most part they're pretty stylized and anime -y. they kind of fit weirdly within like the like pretty high rent like quality world and then the voice acting is very bad i'm feeling very torn on it because i i sort of feel like i would actually enjoy playing the original more because i feel like the art was so good in the original that it's kind of timeless in a way I don't feel like the 3D, like it's not like Final Fantasy 7 quality where 7 is like fucking just top tier shit. Uh, this is like mid to low tier 3D. Yeah, you've replaced like the best, you know, sprite graphics you could possibly imagine with uh, kind of, you know, middle of the road 3D graphics. Right. Yeah, it's almost like the the thought process is like 3D is inherently just better than pixel art. And I don't think that argument works <laughs> of course not and they also like they've done some weird things like you now have like waypoint markers all over your map to let you know what's the next thing to do except they haven't changed anything in terms of like the structure of the story so it's all still like the same text boxes and stuff like you just walk up to a character hit x and they spew out a few like text boxes and like it's not super intricate so you just go talk to someone get there whatever they're saying and then you just follow the marker where your next destination is and you don't really explore anything in between because there's not really much in between to see or do so it's very like crazy linear and fe it feels kind of empty and like bland because you get like dubbed over of like very basic text from like you know I, I don't know if it's like straight from the original but it doesn't feel like it's been punched up at all so like when you put it all together the package feels really weird isn't one of the major features of that game that you there's like a, a decent cast of characters and you choose you know three of them to be in your party and the story plays out differently depending on who your party is yes yeah so that, i guess that means that any one particular combination is gonna kind of right you don't get a full game out of any one particular combination because the full game is all the combinations so each individual com you know combination of characters and that and their particular story it's going to feel a little light comparatively. Well, I mean, yes and no. Like, they all have, like, kind of convergent points. So, like, I found my second character. And so once you meet them, it's like, play their, like, intro session. 
So essentially it's like play their like story up until this point and it's usually not very long. So you don't have to go back and play their story. So yeah, you, you do miss out all the other characters, but yeah. Well, the thing that I remember from the part that I did play is that like the primary antagonist of the entire game is determined by who the first party member you choose is. And like the antagonist for the other secondary characters, like they fail somewhere along the way. So like there's a point in the game where like everything you're doing is entirely dependent on that first character choice. And I forget how many characters there were, but that means that their efforts for the end game have to be split across however many characters there are. I think there are six characters, maybe. Sounds about right. It, it feels somehow like hollow. I would just say like play play the original like this one hasn't been there hasn't been enough done to it that i would say justifies it being remade the combat is enjoyable like i think what the, the changes they made were good but i don't really know what the combat was like in the original i can't remember so it might that might be fine too so i do wonder like if Seiken Densetsu 3 had been released in the u.s like shortly after secret of mana would all of us be raving about how much we enjoyed that game as a kid, as opposed to like the decade or whatnot that went in between it being made and us actually being able to experience it? Yeah, I, I think so. I remember playing and being like, this is dope. Like, <laughs> why isn't this here? I think the thing that like, I don't know, at this weird point in time, I, there's so many remakes. You know, they just released Resident Evil 3 which I've heard was mediocre. Resident Evil 2, I heard, was very good. And then Final Fantasy VII is real good, but it's also different. And then I hear they're making like a Resident Evil 4, but like Resident Evil 4, you can still buy and play perfectly fine on PC. Like, I don't know. I think the 4 remake, I think, is just a rumor. I think they're the more credible rumor seems to be they're doing Resident Evil 8. Well, they, they, they have like multiple teams. Like, the team that made Resident Evil 2 remake didn't make the Resident Evil 3 remake. So they kind of, like, hopscotch over each other. So from what I have heard is that, like, the team that was doing 2 is going to be doing 8. And then the team that did 3 is going to be doing 4. I, I, I'm not sure how I feel about all these games being remade. Like, I, I think, like, a remaster? Like, maybe? Bringing it up to, like, current, like, HD stuff, but... If if it's available, like Resident Evil Four, it, you can play it in that stuff. Like I don't know, I don't know if it's really something I I I want to see a remake of. I feel like the reason we see so many remakes nowadays is the same reason why we see so many sequels, not just in video games but in movies as well. And it's just because the cost of producing media at this point has gone so high, especially when you look at things like the Final Fantasy VII remake and whatnot. Like studios are risk averse and so they want to basically make something where they know people are going to spend the money to buy it and they're not going to actually sort of you know run a lot of risk in making a new intellectual property and i kind of think that kind of sucks but from a business perspective it makes a lot of sense yeah i was kind of thinking the same exact thing and also one thing to think about is like from our perspective we're all kind of roughly the same age and like i feel like this is kind of the age where like nostalgia starts to kick in Right, because like you're an adult, and it's like oh, you're doing adult stuff for the rest of your life. Oh, but that stuff when I was a kid, that stuff was great. So like, and no, so now we're like the ones that are getting all the nostalgia hits of like, oh, Final Fantasy VII was great, Resident Evil was great. So now like all the, you know, nostalgia money machine is aimed directly at us now. So it's more noticeable. But this stuff has kind of been going on forever to some extent. But to Trevor's point, I think it's probably more so the emphasis on remakes is is like you said, kind of from the. Uh, you know, financial perspective of it's a it's a very safe investment to just like make a thing that people already love and then people they'll probably buy it even if it sucks. Yeah. Yeah. I think partially also we are now of the age group where we have money to throw around on these sorts of things. So, you know, they know their dem target demographics. Yeah. Have you ever seen um I'm gonna i I'm gonna say a kid, you know, maybe a college student or a young twenty something wax nostalgic about Minecraft? It's so weird. Like when they were a kid. That's that's what makes me feel the oldest. Wait, what? Like, like Minecraft, right? We've all been playing that since it came out, essentially. Yeah. And it was the the, the entirety of Minecraft's lifespan has been during our adult lives. Um, but there, you know, there are now young adults out there who played it as little kids, and they're nostalgic about Minecraft. 
for the game that we've been playing for, you know, 10 of our own adult years. That's what makes me feel super old. I feel like it just came out to me. <laughs> no, and that was 10 years ago. Um, yeah, no, like, yeah. like Minecraft, right, kind of fell out of popularity for a little while, and it was considered only for little kids, I would say, you know, in the, uh, like, five years ago. And then I would say in the past four, three or four years, it has kind of resurged in popularity, and it's because these now young adults are, are nostalgic about the game they played as a kid, and they're playing it again. I don't remember people waxing nostalgic about Pong when I was a kid. No, nah, it was too niche, right? Like, uh, adults back then, you know, didn't play as many video games. We're now, we're now in that sort of, uh, yeah, we're in that sort of demographic where, you know, large swaths of adult populations play video games as a kid. Because we're like one of the first generations that has that. It's fair. It's sort of interesting to think about, like, our generation, like, not everyone was playing video games. It was sort of like a kind of niche activity, as I recall. And I definitely get the sense that nowadays it's kind of ubiquitous in the youth. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, if you include, I don't know, like, phone games especially, I think it goes up to, like, 94% of kids play some kind of digital game. Fucking Fortnite, Ken? <laughs> yeah. Oh, hey, total. This is completely off topic, but I have to talk about it. Uh, did you guys see that Fortnite concert? Yeah, with about uh, Travis Scott. Yeah, um, I saw the video of it, and I actually thought it was kind of amazing. They, like, really captured the medium of a video game and turned it into, like, a really legitimate concert experience. And, like, it wasn't tethered by, you know, like, our previous existing, you know, notions of what a concert must be. Like, they kind of played with it, you know? It started off with, like, a stage sitting in a space. And then, uh, and like, you know, people kind of sitting around and dancing and stuff. And then it just goes, like, buck wild. And I, I really recommend watching it and just showing... It's just a, such a great example of showing... Um, when you sort of untether yourself and like really embrace like a digital interactive medium, like what you can do differently and, and, and kind of take an experience to the next level. Yeah. I've, I've seen uh videos of it where he's like stories tall and like, there's like lights and shit floating around and like weird stuff happening. Yeah. He doesn't have to stand on a stage because it's digital. It's, you know, you can bend reality however you want. So yeah, he's a giant and you're like a little character. You're running around under his feet. Uh, you know, this, the quote unquote scene changes. Suddenly he's a giant in the middle of this like funnel and all the characters, like all the like, Fortnite players are like sliding down the funnel and like kind of looking up at him and then it changes again and you're flying through the sky and it's just, there's so many cool things and, and it gets like trippier and trippier as you go. Um, it was, uh, yeah, I was very impressed by it. Yeah. It looked really cool and oddly well-timed to have a completely digital concert. I was going to say, do people know if that effort was inspired or driven at all by COVID-19? Oh, I assumed. I assumed, yeah, but I, I guess who knows? I don't know. I, like, I really when you it. look at it, like, the amount of effort that went into it, like, that had to be in the work for, like, a few months, right? Yeah, but we also have been in COVID for a couple months now. So, I don't know. We're in that gray zone of it. It's possible. Mm, it, they would have had to, they would have had to, like, start it, like, in January. And in January, nobody knew this was going to happen. I guess that's true. So yeah, maybe it was just a happy accident. Or alternatively, it could be the sort of thing where they were originally planning on doing it, but then they realized while they were in the middle of production, oh shit, COVID-19. So they dumped a lot more resources into it, but they already had this sort of like framework in place. That, that also could be true. Yeah, quite possibly. I did watch some of the streams of the, uh, the, like the Minecraft equivalent of like people putting on shows there, which is a much more like... DIY thing, not like a, you know, put on by Epic Games with one of the most popular rappers in the world, but just like weird random bands and stuff. And it was definitely pretty bizarre, but pretty interesting to see. And they actually did get uh, at least like one or two like really prominent bands to do a set, set quote unquote. It's all kind of pre-recorded, which is all kind of strange. Yeah. So like, what did they do, and like, how did they how did they utilize Minecraft to to put on a concert? Well, they, well, I think the coolest part was that they kind of made like a custom like venue basically for each of these shows, or it was like kind of like a festival each time. So like they kind of like would make this, uh, you know, Minecraft area with weird like there's like the VIP room where if you like you know subscribe on Twitch or whatever you get to go in the VIP room and there's like weird like merch you can get that's just like a Minecraft skin and there's like weird hidden stuff to find in the world. Like the stage was based on the album art from one of the bands. Just like making it, it's almost like a weird art project, and then they just also have people hanging out and listening to music. So it's kind of just a weird, these weird, bizarre things that just like could not exist if not for games and the internet. Yeah, I guess I was just wondering how much, like, how uh, 
how much they accidentally shackled themselves to like the previous notions of a concert versus like um like this Fortnite one you know like you don't have to separate the artist from the audience the way you do in real life because the artist is safe so he's 40 stories tall and you're in you're you're like your regular avatar but you're like occupying the same space as him and there's a setting that allows you to jump you know essentially 40 stories and you're just bouncing around around the the audio, uh, the artist, but you know, you're not disturbing his performance. It's part, it's like part of the experience. Not just uh, something really, it's, it's cool that they, you know, completely, uh, just questioned every aspect of it and said like, you know, what is a concert in a video game and what can make it, what's completely different about it that we can embrace. And I feel like that's something that people aren't like, don't properly appreciate how hard that is. Are people familiar with the concept of skeuomorphism? I, I think so. I don't know the word, but I'm sure I know the concept, uh, intuitively or from another angle or something. Yeah, but it's basically the idea where like the design of something in some new space reflects the physical constraints of the previous version of it based on what it was before. So for example, like if you look at a digital calendar, um, very often it reflects the fact that when you were looking at paper calendars, those paper calendars would only show one month at a time. And so it's like the initial implementation of that will very often reflect the physical thing that it's copying. Same things with sort of like contacts being like similar to index cards or, you know, phones, things like that. Yeah, Brendan, you would be familiar with this. Right around when we were graduating college, skeuomorphism was like a huge design aesthetic because that's what Apple was using for all of their apps and stuff, you know? Like Game Center looked like a green felt game board. So like oh, yeah. everything had to like look and feel like like it did in the real world. I'm using real world with air quotes because it was not quite like that. But, you know, that was the aesthetic where everything on the iPhone had that, like, it was grounded in some kind of realistic texturing and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, the same applies to, like, you know, any of the new media that we learn. You know, we, we all, we, not we all, you and me, Andy, we studied new media, yeah. right? And we we didn't, I don't remember our teachers calling it skeuomorphism, but definitely this may be more especially in the game design classes I took um, outside of our major, but uh, definitely definitely touched upon how um, the different sort of entertainment media over the last you know century were borrowing heavily from the previous entertainment media up until the point where they learned how to you know, design their own vocabulary. So like cinema used to borrow heavily from uh, theater until cinema understood that, wait a second, we can like move the camera around and like change the you know like do a cut and like the audience will come along with us and then suddenly they're completely untethered from that previous constraint and the language of cinematography was born and then like video games you know did a similar a similar process of borrowing from cinema at least like the sort of triple a kind of you know cinematic video game um and you know it's it's gone through its own exploration of what you know video games uh can do that no other medium can I think even VR is doing the same thing, you know, uh, borrowing heavily from the previous sort of type of, of video game and exploring its, its own affordances and how it's different and similar. I would argue that video games are still trying to break themselves from film. I think uh, video games are so complex because there's just so many, like, it's hard to capture video games in one particular slice, you know? Like, I kind of said, like, the cinematic video game, but, of course, we have all these other, like, weird you know, experimental or indie or our, you know, a puzzle games or whatever. It's such a wide expanse of, of genres and game types. So I'm sure there's still plenty of, of exploration to do. Um, I don't know what that means for the yeah. cinematic type video game, though. And keep in mind, video games is like an extremely young genre as far as like genres go, like 40 some odd years. Like that's not that much time for like an art form to develop. Yeah. Hey, speaking of video game genres you wanted to talk about tower defense hey what a what a great transition thank you so much oh, i'm blown away by that <laughs> hell uh, yeah nailed it <laughs> <laughs> yeah so this was kind of just inspired by me playing some some of the random like ludum dare games trying to you know uh if after every ludum dare we try to like rate a bunch of other people's games and give them feedback and stuff and Ford's usually so the, one one, I, the only one that does it. <laughs> I was gonna yeah, say, we, really, we all is it. Other Ford. people did. <laughs> yeah, the, I'm the pretty much the only reason our games get rated. So you're welcome. Yep. Uh, so one of the games I was playing was uh, actually by Terry Cavanaugh, which is pretty cool. It's always cool to see like the more famous people do Ludum Dare. 
He, oh, yeah. um, he did like that game VVV, VVV, and yep. uh, Super Hexagon, I think. Yeah, I follow oh, him okay. on Twitter. Yeah, so he made this um, Luminaire game hilariously called Tower Defense of the Heart. And the, so it's a tower defense game, and the music is just totally ripped off from uh, Total Eclipse of the Heart, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> yes. Very good. Excellent. Most people don't do such brazen, <laughs> brazen copyright infringement, but that's cool. Um, and like, it's pretty fun. It's like a standard tower defense game, but like, as I was playing it, I was kind of realizing that like, I don't like, is tower defense just like a bullshit genre? Like, I don't know. It was just kind of a weird experience to be like, okay, I'm plopping towers down and then I either live or I die. And then I just kind of trial and error, see what happens. And the game gives me no indication of like how to put down towers better. I just have to try them. So it just feels like a bizarre genre where like you don't get really any feedback. You just try different stuff and like watch what happens. Like it's a weird simulation. Like you're just trying to be like a, the optimal DPS calculator somehow and then you win or not and great. And it just feels like such a weird genre because you don't you like you don't see AAA games like that really. You don't really see even serious indie games doing tower defense. They're kind of all just like game jam games and like mobile games like is this just a weird do i not get it or is this so just a weird genre yeah like in back in the day they were just podunk flash games or even like starcraft maps like my, my first tower defense game was a starcraft map yeah that was my experience as well like a lot of warcraft 3 mods that were basically tower defense maps i think that was where i got most exposure to the genre yeah i was gonna say they were real big i want to say like maybe around like 2010 or something maybe even before but like uh yeah flash games were real big but then it was like the right around when the ipad first was released like the first wave of super popular games for the like very first ipad were all tower defense games but then pretty quickly uh those kind of fell away because yeah like you were saying it's kind of like set it and forget it like you set it up you line up all your shit and then you hit go and then you can't really do anything and you either like win or you lose but like sometimes it can take a while for it to like process and that it's very strange and can be boring and frustrating but it still has like a really they they, they still have this like really solid game loop of you know like collecting and upgrading and strategizing in like I would say the feedback is still there of like figuring out, you know, like, like you get to see how your strategy plays out. Unfortunately, you know, if you lose, you, you usually just lose and that's not great. Um, but there's still something really sticky there. And I feel like maybe there's just like a, it's got this mm, weird dichotomy of like really, really, like uh, really, really compelling aspects and then really, re like really big downsides at the same time. My kind of experience was like, it was like really still kind of addictive, even though I was like annoyed at it. Oh, it's the best kind of addictive. <laughs> yeah. It's like a clicker game where it's like you, you get pulled in, but it's like you resent the fact that it pulls you in. <laughs> but like, yeah, the tower defense feels like it's a weird combination of like a city building game, which is kind of like a fun creative thing with like a real game that has like stakes and win loss conditions, which city building games don't have. So it's like this weird cross between creative stuff and not creative stuff. Like, uh, I just don't know how to articulate like how it could even be better. I mean, is the biggest downside the lack of real-time interaction with it when it's moving? Like, that's maybe, like, an area of exploration. Yeah, I mean, this game did that a little bit because you could sell the towers. But I think the the thing that, the, the key, the core takeaway that I had was, like, I was frustrated when I would lose and not understand why. And I have no idea how to get better. Yeah. Because, like, so much, it's, it's about whether you win or lose, and it's just, like, I don't know what the fuck to do. When I was playing a bunch of, like, Warcraft 3 custom maps that were tower defense, um... I mean, one of the things that really stood out was just how poorly balanced a lot of the maps were. I think part of what made them so prevalent is that it was very easy to make tower defense maps using Warcraft 3. And I think also, like, you know, honestly, they're not terribly difficult games to make. I think I made one as a final project for my first programming class back in college. But yeah, I definitely agree with you in terms of, like, the, the difficulty curve for them, I think, is one of those things that's really hard to get right. Because, like... If you're letting things through, like the first thing that gets through your maze, like you're almost doomed at that point because like you're starting to leak and you're going to end up losing. And that usually denies you resources that you need in order to build those towers. So it's a very quick negative feedback cycle that ends up with you dying very quickly afterward. But on the other hand, like if you have a maze that's completely destroying everything before it gets to the end then like you're basically ignoring it and you're not doing much of anything until all of a sudden the game has advanced and you know like all of a sudden oh shit i'm overwhelmed by these new flying mobs or whatever that i wasn't expecting 
and at the end of the day, most of them basically felt like you memorized the game itself. It basically just became a sort of predetermined set of choreography. It's like, oh, yes, every fifth level, they're going to throw flyers at you, so you need to upgrade all of your anti-air towers. Otherwise, you need to build your maze and do this other stuff. But honestly, I feel like what's more interesting is looking at the actual commercial tower defense games, because I know I've played a couple, and I can't remember any of their names, unfortunately. Is Bloons? Remember Bloons? Is that one professional? Oh, Bloons! Yes, I do remember that. That was a cool one, because it was, like, simplified, right? It wasn't, like, hit point bars. It was just, like, a balloon had a hit point, and then the next color turned into the one hit point balloon after a hit. And so, like, it was just, I don't know, and it, like, it was a very one-to-one relationship. I, th- I thought that was cool. And it was monkeys throwing darts. Yeah, that was a good game. I remember that. That was, that was an iPhone game. It was a Flash game first. Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, I, I thought that the game we made um, isn't, int- like, we didn't uh, execute on the idea all the way, but um, the pinball tower defense game is a really interesting concept that allows you to have that real-time interaction with the tower defense system and add the strategy of like being able to aim, you know, the enemy towards wherever you need, you need it to go. I, th- I think that, I think that idea has a lot of legs, actually. I would love to explore that more in the future. I'm not, I don't remember that one. Yeah. I don't think I was around for that one. Yeah. It was just me, you, uh, Ford and Eugene, I think. I think so. Roushy may have contributed a little bit, maybe. Actually, I don't remember. I was like, that was like one of the ones where I wasn't around that much. So all I had to do was, or I, all I had time for was to make one song and like some sounds. I'm pretty sure that must have been like right after Link was born. So, yeah. But yeah, the idea of it, I mean, to, I guess just to explain it, is that you, you know, you, the game is a pinball machine. The enemies are the pinballs themselves. And so, and then the bumpers and shit are your towers. And so it's up to you to sort of keep the ball afloat and taking damage um, with your paddles. And of course, every time you destroy a ball, you get to upgrade and like add new towers or upgrade them or whatever. And there's like a lot of ways for that to go, but, you know, add multiple balls. Let's say you're like managing, you know, managing a bunch of action all at once. Um, But yeah, it was just a... It's, it seemed like it would play really, really well. We just didn't get around to making a really good like user interface for upgrading your base, so it kind of fell flat. Uh. Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of mitigates the kind of, to me, the, one of the big problems with card fence is like you don't really have any like interactions, and to me, like games are all about just having fun interactions. And like pinball is obviously just a super fun thing to knock the ball around, but I feel like still the, the main metaphor of like the ball being the enemy and having to shoot it and blow it up is a, still a little feels a little funny to me. Um, I don't know if I can articulate any better way to do it, but I think in the in the idea of just coming at it from the pinball angle, like if you're playing and then the ball gets destroyed, that's kind of not fun because the whole thing is to have the ball around and keep it in play. So that feels a little weird. Oh, you see, I found it to be I found it to be like an interesting, like intuitive, not intuitive. Um like a design insight, like a leap in, in, in insight because because you usually think of the ball as like you or your avatar and like the good thing. Um, so I thought that was an interesting reversal. I think, yeah, it's a little unintuitive because it's not how pinball normally works. <laughs> but it actually ends up playing really well with tower defense because, yeah, you t- the ball takes the damage over time and the towers, right, the, the space is the space of the game is what contains the towers. I don't know. I thought it was cool. And I, yeah, and I, I like that you can it's got that two game modes of like design design the layout of the pinball machine and then press go and play and then you know destroy the balls yeah i mean it's definitely an idea i would want to explore more it's just like it's just it's a little bit weird i'm wondering if we can like figure out how to make that feel a little bit better somehow what if there's what if there was like uh one of the balls is not an enemy and it's the one you want to keep afloat and you want actually trying to like smack it into the other balls I've seen some other variants on tower defense as well. Uh, there's an indie game I played a year or two back called Rise to Ruins uh, when it was in early access. I have uh, since, both because of a lot of other early access games, sworn off early access games, but this was when I was doing that phase of my life. Um, but it was sort of like, you know, town building. Um, you sort of like had villagers and whatnot. Um, but the main thing is that at night, creatures would attack, and you would build towers that would kill them before they got into your village. Um, and so in that one, like, you know, you had sort of, you were basically playing a god, and so you had, like, spells and whatnot that you could throw at them, which seemed like a reasonable system. 
Um, but I always feel like in games like that where the interaction you have with the incoming enemies in a tower defense game is basically just doing damage to them, like either you're way too powerful compared to your towers or you're completely useless compared to your towers. And if there's any disagreement between the two, it's like mm, yeah. the game doesn't feel right. Yeah, it's kind of a bummer when a genre like lends itself well to like being very susceptible to bad level design or whatever, right? It almost seems like it's a, you know, one of those things where maybe it's a bad level design or maybe the genre is just weird. I say challenge accepted. Design good levels for it. How about we take a break? transition this because i don't know what the fuck a judas goat is (laughs) (laughs) well i'm so glad you asked there's actually like two sort of common uses for judas goats um there's the boring one which i'll explain first and then there's the exciting one which i'll go after afterward um because it's more interesting and the one that i was aware of before the first one so apparently the more common meaning for a Judas goat, is a goat that is trained to basically go into a slaughterhouse and lead a bunch of other animals into it, basically sort of like to make them overcome their natural fear of machinery and whatnot, basically like, oh, hey, there's this other animal, and he totally thinks that this is fine, so I'm going to follow him. So basically cows, sheep, whatever, they'll follow the Judas goat. And the Judas goat will basically be, you know, shepherded through as, you know, a VIP and the others will be, you know, getting a little bit less of a VIP treatment, but they're there, you know, and that's the important thing. And so apparently this was fairly common uh, practice in slaughterhouses um, historically, um, less so for modern times, I guess, conveyor belts and whatnot make that less required. So that's the boring use of Judas goats. Um, Although I'd have to feel like, you know, the Judas goats have to have... um, I wonder what's going on inside their heads after all of that, you know, like going through slaughterhouses over and over and over again. But apparently they're happy with it because, you know, they'll still go back into them. You know, they're trained well. Like, I don't know what's going on here, but I'm having a good time. I don't know where Tim went, but I like Judy. Let's bring Judy in here. Yeah. And I get to walk through the shiny space again. It's my special place. So, yes, that is the boring version of the Judas Goat. The more exciting version of the Judas goat is used as a form of sort of like ecological control. So namely, when humans were doing their big, you know, exploration of the world, they would very often go around to new tropical islands or whatnot and introduce all sorts of non-native species, intentionally or otherwise. And goats were one of many species that were introduced. And goats are actually really bad for the ecologies of these islands because they can eat almost anything. They have no natural predators. And they're really damn good at getting up and down hills and into all sorts of, you know, unexplorable corners. And so basically, like, they will completely devastate the vegetation on these islands and then sort of, like, leave nothing to eat for all of the native, you know, animal species of it. So, uh, basically, people, having introduced goats to these islands, realized, oh, shit, my bad. I should undo this. Time to kill every Uh, goat. (laughs) Yes. Although, you know, they generally use more, you know, euphemistic terms for that. Um, Like destroy or, you know, eradicate. Or I I guess that one's less euphemistic. How is is destroy (laughs) better than kill? (laughs) That sounds (laughs) horrible. Well, don't, haven't you heard people refer to destroying animals or whatnot as opposed to killing animals? Yeah, I guess it makes them sound more inanimate, right? Yeah, I guess. 
Right. That seems worse to me. It does. To like, because like we all know that it's a living thing, and saying you're gonna destroy it like it's a thing is gross. I agree with you, but nonetheless, that is the terminology I hear. So anyway, so now you've got these goats on these islands, and they're all over the place because they're pretty damn good mountaineers. And you decide, okay, hey, let's try to, uh, you know, restore the natural ecology of these islands by uh, destroying all of the goats. Uh, Problem one. Making them alivent. Yes. Less alive. Unalive, if you will. Challenge one. How do you locate all of the goats? Because, you know, maybe they're up in that, you know, mountain-looking place that you don't really want to go to. Or maybe they're all over the place. And there's also lots of them. And goats being, you know, animals, you can capture 90% of them and miss 10% of them. And then when you come back to the island next time, five years later, they're completely snakes. repopulated. Hunter snakes. Yeah, you have yeah. to introduce a new invasive predator for the yes. goats. It's never backfired, ever. <laughs> that is definitely an option. Um, so anyway, initial efforts were basically just sort of like trying to hunt down all of the goats. And, you know, mixed results, like I said, primarily because of the difficulty of finding the damn goats. But what one very clever person realized is that goats are social creatures, and goats are actually very good at finding other goats. That's because they're always yelling at one another. <laughs> so basically what they did is they would take a goat, they would neuter it, then they would paint it red or some high-visibility color, attach a radio transmitter to it, and then release it on the island. Hey, Tim. Hey, Tim, why are you red? And also, why do you have an antenna sticking out of your back? Oh, it's, so, it's such a sad, <laughs> like, also, no descriptor because, you know, Judas, Judas, the, the you know, the, the actual, like, person um, did it on purpose. You know, he knew what he was doing. So, like, it's really sad to sort of these poor hapless goats accidentally causing their brethren to die. I feel like, I feel like Judas is a, is a, unfortunate name it's for true them. i feel like it's a catchy name at the in the end of the day that's all that really matters although i agree with you that it is definitely inaccurate and definitely no fault of these goats maybe they themselves. interviewed the goats beforehand being like on a scale of one to ten how much do you hate your fellow goats <laughs> right they're like they put them through an interview process they're like so your family what do you think and he's like fucking hate them i would kill them all if i could <laughs> you're hired how do you feel about being painted red and having an antenna sticking out of you? I've always wanted to be a cyborg. <laughs> but yeah, the net result of all of this is that they could then easily find the Judas goats that they had released, who would then have infiltrated the local goat communities, you know, intentionally or otherwise. Um, and then they would capture, quote unquote, all of the other goats. Um, and then, you know, wait a while, the Judas goat would find another community, come back, repeat the process. Keep on doing this enough times, and all of a sudden you find the Judas goat alone, and you know it has finished its mission. Oh, okay. There were, in <laughs> fact, air quotes there, but uh, I suppose that doesn't come across in a uh, uh, podcast. Uh, dead, dead made. You, they, they were dead made. Yes, yes. I mean, I would think like maybe they would make some goat meat out of it or something. Maybe there could be some nice side effects, but primarily their goal was just to, you know, ecological recovery for the islands and, you know, Transporting and butchering dead goats, a lot of effort. I kind of suspect they probably didn't bother. Like during the peak of these sorts of programs, though, like they would actually, like for the larger islands, have like, you know, 50 of these Judas goats out uh, with ra their radio transmitters and then come back and basically hunt and like track down the other goats using the radio transmitters from helicopters. So it's like, you know, this is like Vietnam shit for goats here. Let's shoot some RPGs down on the island, <laughs> do some ecological yeah. damage. <laughs> what the fuck <laughs> <laughs> yeah and all that shit was our fault in the first place Whoops. for fucking with the environment yep and I mean as fucked up as I have to figure out the psychology of the first category of Judas goats was in terms of leading animals through uh, slaughterhouses I have to feel like there's got to be way more trauma for these sort of like island exterminating Judas goats because, like, you release one, and his first thought on the island has to be something along the lines of, wow, I'm lonely. If only I could find some friends. <laughs> what keeps happening to my friends? Exactly. The loneliest Over goats. and over and over again. My friends keep dying. 
And then as soon as you can't find any friends anymore, you move somewhere else. It's like going to a new school. Is district. there a way to make this a story about humans in like a weird dystopian future? And like, it's like the same exact, you know, like character arc that you just described, but on a person. So, I mean, how well does red paint apply to people? This is kind of a very loose relation, but it reminds me of like when like FBI people will try to infiltrate like counterculture or groups like in the 60s to the extent of like they would pose as one of these people and then like fall in love with one of their members to get married and like for years and then all of a sudden it's like yeah i was an fbi agent this whole time Ooh. and you're busted like that's some fucked up stuff hello fellow kids yeah but they would like succeed by just like yeah completely infiltrating this place for years it's crazy like how long would these marriages last like years <laughs> like basically like making a whole life that was just a sham Ugh. i feel like in this case you know the use of judas is more appropriate it's definitely a lot more yeah. conscious but no, it's more like the judas goat is the the spouse right yeah i guess it's the same thing like when uh i don't know didn't it happen did it happen in star wars like a you know that they put a bug on the millennium falcon and then it led them to the rebel base in the end I think that's what happened in A New Hope. I think in the first one, so. right? Yeah, yeah. They put a tracker on the Millennium Falcon. That's how... So, so the main characters is what, are what caused the base to almost get destroyed. But thank God the main characters were there to blow up the Death Star. The end. And they didn't make <laughs> well, they any made, more They made movies. one and then maybe a third. I have mixed feelings about that one. <laughs> right. I like Return of the Jedi. It used to be my favorite one when I was a little kid. Then, yeah. then I saw the, I saw the, st the decline started then. If you're really being honest with yourself. Does anybody want to go over some last things? Maybe some like something that you would recommend to everyone else? Like something that you're into? Be like, yo, check this out. We can call this segment. Yo, check this out. Oh, hey, we're inventing a segment. I love it. <laughs> hey, <laughs> hey, check this out. It looks like HBO has a new series coming. Um, it's called, uh, what the hell is it? It's like Lovecraft um, Town or something like that. I don't know. It's, uh, it's interesting. it looks like, uh, if I'm not mistaken, like um, Jordan Peele and J.J. Abrams or something coming together to make something weird. And it's like they're down south and there's stuff with monsters i don't i don't know man it looks pretty cool uh i've got a yo check this out uh cc uh cgp gray's latest video he's a youtube person makes really cool informational videos uh made one called lockdown productivity spaceship u it's kind of like a series of very strategic pieces of advice to uh cope with being isolated in your apartment during you know quarantine and but a lot of the a lot of the things he's telling you how to do is like you know how to manage your physical and mental health uh, are applicable even outside you know um, if you're feeling depressed or whatever. Just a very good, very good sort of simple framework for uh, for existing positively in a negative time. Nice. So I check that out. Yeah. Oh, I have another uh, TV recommendation of uh, The Expanse. I don't know if anybody else has watched that. Oh yeah, we've been. It's really solid. We've been sci-fi. Yeah, sorry. We have been binging that one um, recently. It's it's great. Trevor, you got anything? I do, actually. I thought of something while we were talking. Um, so what I would recommend is a show I've been watching recently called Community. Um, it's a bit of a cult classic. Already has a following. I feel yes. like I'm <laughs> years late in watching it. But it just came to Netflix recently, like within the last month or two or something. Um, so I've been binge watching that. I've actually, I'm thinking I'm in like the, just got to the fourth season. Um, so again, basic premise for people who are not familiar with it. Um, it was one of the earlier shows made by Dan Harmon, who's better known nowadays for Rick and Morty. 
Um, but it's a comedy uh, sort of like sitcom, basically, taking place at a community college where the main character is a lawyer who faked his degree and has to go and get a real one in order to, you know, get back into practice. Um, and then they very quickly go from that and, you know, just go in sort of interesting directions. But it's got an ensemble cast and it's funny. Yeah. And I just reached the season where the creator was fired from it. Um, and now it kind of feels like a bit of a fan fiction. Yeah, I was way into it back then and like watching it in real time. I just kind of fell off after all that stuff happened just because it just felt a little bit weird. But I kind of want to get back to it. But yeah, I'm cool. enjoying it and it's definitely lighter fare. Was Dan Harmon, the, did, did Dan Harmon work on Scrubs? No? Don't, don't believe so. Oh yeah, I love most of his stuff. I don't know. Right? Didn't, maybe I'm mixing, mixing stuff. Didn't he also work on Parks and Recreation? Oh, you're thinking of uh, Sure, Michael Sure. Oh, okay. Michael Schur made, uh, he worked on The Office, uh, Parks and Rec, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and The Good Place. Okay, yeah, that that guy is the bomb. He makes such good TV. Yes. Uh, so do we want to go around and um, say where people can find us? Like uh, your Twitter name or something? Or you got like a, a SoundCloud yeah, I'll share my Twitter after we shat on Twitter earlier <laughs> this episode. It's, uh, yeah, I'm, I think my it. handle is the Brendo, T H E B R E N D O. I'm at A Mindler, A M I N D L E R on Twitter. And I'm Radhesian on Twitter with an R at the beginning. I also, I also do legitimately have a real SoundCloud, not as a joke. Yes. That's soundcloud.com slash adhesion. I also have, adhesion.bandcamp.com oh, shit. for all my other music. Uh, yeah, adhesion.mu is my website with mostly just links to those other two things I said. And that's about it. Yeah, and I don't have a Twitter account, so I will, maybe this will be the push that finally gets me to do it. So in the meantime, if anyone wants to get in contact with me, reach out to any of these other fine gentlemen and express your interest in getting in contact with me. Or you can go to, uh, what is it, radmars.hio? Check out our games. Yeah. Yeah. Or redmars.com, which is different games and not updated as much. Yeah. <laughs> we should make those more uh, more symmetrical. All right. Well, I think that's the end of the show. I'll see you guys later. All right. Bye. See you later. All right. Good night, everyone. It is weird saying bye, but have it be like a bullshit bye. And like yeah, I know. Yeah. Honestly, we need to do we need to do more bullshit. We need to be a little like a little bit more aware of that we're not really just talking to each other, but we're talking to an audience. Yeah. Are we? Yeah, I, I was. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I was thinking that when I was like doing it. Hypothetical audience. The the we're pretending we're pretending there's an audience. Yeah, I was gonna be like, <laughs> I wanted to be like, say goodbye, but also. Don't leave. <laughs> I think we all read between the lines there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was very subtle. I saw you winking. Yep.